Better Call Paul is a production of Lola Media. Say hi, Lola. Hey, everyone. This is Paul Sarker from Better Call Paul. Just wanted to remind you that the show is intended for entertainment purposes only and is not legal advice. I am not your lawyer unless we separately agree for me to represent you. And the views expressed by Mesh and me are solely our own. Hey, everyone. Welcome back to Better Call Paul, the show where we discuss the legal and business side behind the scenes of Hollywood sports and entertainment. I'm your co-host, Paul Sarker, former Marvel lawyer and current big law media attorney. And I'm your other co-host, Mesh Lakani, pop culture enthusiast and big, big fan of The Last of Us. I keep saying it, but um, man, this show is blowing me away, Paul. Have you had a chance to watch yet? I have not had a chance to watch yet. It's been a uh, very brutal week work-wise, and it was like a lot of very late nights, which is no fun. And the activity started to ramp up. Next week is Grammys and also Super Bowl. Oh, that's right. The Super Bowl. The Super Bowl's next week. Super Bowl's uh, sorry, two weeks. Okay, Pro okay. Bowl and then Super Bowl. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But no, I haven't. Although I can't wait for Ted Lasso season three. I, I I'm excited. You know, it's funny enough. I, I started randomly watching season two and I just stopped it because it just wasn't as good as season one. And I hate the fact that they made Nate the villain. Why do you got to make the sweet brown guy who's insecure? You couldn't give him a longer stretch of being the man, and now he's the bad guy. Well, I feel like the seeds for that were kind of sown in season one. Remember how angry he was when he thought he had been replaced in the last episode? Yeah. Well, let's talk about the character. The character is the most entitled brat that has ever graced the presence of specifically Apple TV. Like Ted Lasso brings this kid in and now he wants it all. And I guess it's like the natural progression of any bullied kid who then becomes the villain. What's the quote from The Dark Knight? It's you live long enough to see yourself become the villain. Yeah, you either die a hero or you live long enough to see yourself become the villain. (laughs) Yeah, that's Nate. Yeah, that's Nate. I'm excited to see season three too. I I think it's going to be great. And we talked about this last week. Like Apple's been on a run now with some good shows. I hear that shrinking show with Jason Segel and Harrison Ford is pretty good. Yeah, it's funny you say that Apple's been on a run because this week, obviously, we're going to get into the Oscar nominations. And it wasn't a great Oscar season for the streaming services. Typically, like last year, they had Coda, Power of the Dog. Oh, yeah, Power of the Dog was good. This year, I think it's just all quiet on the Western front as far as the streaming contenders. Until I started looking up the nominations, that's the only one I never heard of or I don't know anything about. That type of movie is right up my alley which is why I've heard of it. I do enjoy them. Like 1917. 1917 was a good movie. I mean, I'm look, I'm looking at the list right now. You have Elvis, Everything, Everywhere, All at Once, All Quiet on the Western Front, Top Gun, Avatar 2, Banshees of Inisherin, Triangle Sadness, Women Talking, The Fableman's Tar. I love that Triangle Sadness got nominated. I don't know if most people have seen it, but it was a fantastic movie. And my vote would honestly be, I really like The Fableman's. I think either you give it to Tar or you give it to Top Gun Maverick. I think those are the ones that deserve best picture. You're going against the grain here because I think a lot of people would say everything, everywhere, all at once. It was hard to follow. I'll be honest. I didn't get through it the first time I tried to watch it. I I fell asleep. But part of that is because I was probably laying down. It's a long (laughs) movie and there's a lot going on. It's really long. But maybe Top Gun Maverick. Yeah, like I think Top Gun just deserves it from like the standpoint of a perfect sequel. Tom Cruise still's got it. It brought people back into theaters. It was just such a great accomplishment. 
I agree with you on everything everywhere all at once. Here's the other thing. We say that it's long, but Triangle of Sadness was long. The Fablemans was long. Tar was long. All these movies were almost three hours long. Right. It wasn't the length as much as it was like the concepts. And like, there's so many things going on. Like when they first meet and they start dating, they come to America. Then there's like different universes. And it could have been a like a season of a show, I think. Totally. Hopefully it wins some, you know, whether it's for its screenplay, special effects. Uh, Michelle Yeoh, I, ideally, I think, gets best actress in this. We'll talk about the actual snubs. I don't know if you have any personals there. Uh, I think for me, I do. And I think for you, I do. It's Triple, Triple R, R. I feel like should have been nominated <laughs> for international film. Yeah, I think Tom Cruise should have got a best actor nom. I think totally agree. James Cameron should have got a best director nomination. Hundred percent. And I had the time of my life. I hundred percent agree that it should be nominated for best picture. I one hundred percent agree that James Cameron should have been nominated for it. I think it's a tragedy that he has not. So. Man, I'm excited for the third one. I never thought I'd say that. You know, I haven't seen Woman King, but a lot of what I'm reading is Viola Davis got snubbed. She should have been nominated for Best Actress. There were no black women nominated for Best Actress, although Angela Bassett got nominated for Best Supporting Actress for Black Panther Wakanda Forever. And she was great. She was great. And But this is a, a little bit of a trend. You know, there have been... For the past several years, Oscars so white hashtag and they've improved in their diversity with Parasite and Moonlight. And I guess you could say the Green Book, but I'm not 100 percent sure that that is a step forward in terms of diversity. But it was part of the narrative. And I still think like black women are kind of underrepresented in, in the directing categories and in the best actors categories. And then there's a little bit of controversy about Andrea Riseborough, who yeah. was nominated for Best Actress in To Leslie, but it's a film that only made 27,000 in theaters. So it's like, who watched it? Yeah, I was reading that like now the Hollywood Film Academy is reviewing Oscar nomination campaigns. And I don't really know how the campaigns work. It would be the equivalent of like running for office, right? You have to go out there and like present yourself to get votes, et cetera. Is that kind of how it uh, put an analogy to it? I think so. I mean, your studio or whoever made the film has to support you and send out screeners to the Academy. And there's like, I think, a specific process as to how people are contacted and what you can and can't say directly to members of the Academy. And I think you can sort of say, hey, you know, for your recommendation, you should check out this film. But I don't think you can sort of like pitch them too hard directly or, or really go at the Academy members directly. I think Andrea Riseborough, I think her performance was People are saying it was really good, and so maybe she's deserving, but is she more deserving than Viola Davis? And it's a movie that no one really saw, although she does seem to have friends in, in high places like Gwyneth Paltrow and, and others who have been sort of advocating for her via social media. But I yeah, you're right. The, the Academy said that they were reviewing their candidacy and campaign guidelines to prevent things like this from happening. But, you know, listen, it's, it's, I get it. The Oscars, it's not all about box office and there is art here, but you just want to see diverse people represented and it could go in a number of directions. But I guess you could have said that last year. Yeah, but I think it's also like everyone was just talking about this film and now it's like you've got all these other films. Although when I see on TikTok and stuff and you see everyone's favorite movie, it's still everything everywhere all at once. I really think that there's something about Tar that was really special. I mean, it, it feels like a best picture or the Fablemans. I mean, this is the thing. Now I'm going to be like, well, and Top Gun and Avatar too. They're all good movies. So Exactly. No, you can't have 10 winners. That's <laughs> You know, we uh, vote for the ones where 
either family members or significant others are most interested in. I know my sister, for example, loves Woman King. She's like obsessed with this movie. She keeps telling me about it. So I'm going to have to check that out at some point. One thing I, I think that is a little a departure from last year, and I don't know, you know, one trend or one year doesn't make a trend, but it seems like outside of All Quiet on the Western Front from Netflix, the streamers haven't really had any serious contenders for awards this year, Yeah, which I think is, you know, it's a step back from the year before. It's probably coincidental. I don't think it has anything to do with their stock price because these movies would have been made before the downturn in in all of that. So maybe it impacts their ability to market the films. Yeah, the only one I can think of is Glass Onion that probably got any recognition. And, you know, it was an okay movie. I wouldn't put it in like Oscar t- territory personally. I think like a Daniel Craig or something like the, the individual performances are great. Like the movie for best picture. But yeah, I, I can't think of anything I watched on streaming that I was like, oh my God, that was phenomenal. Other, Other than Triple R. Yeah. It, I mean, that should almost be in the category of best picture because of how well it did globally on Netflix and how perfect of a movie it was. I know. And if for at least international. I yeah. Mean, come on. But anyway, let's take a quick break and jump back in with a couple music stories this week. First, we're going to talk about Scooter Braun. And then after that, we'll talk about his biggest client. So Scooter Braun, you know, the mastermind behind Justin Bieber, the mastermind behind buying Big Machine and really getting under Taylor Swift's skin. This guy is an absolute business genius. And now he's the sole CEO of Hybe America, most famously known for being the record label that went public and gave stock to their artists, such as BTS and a lot of other K-pop bands and merged with Scooter Braun's Ithaca Holdings, which was famously known for the bid on Taylor Swift's Big Machine and had that in their catalog. And now they've merged and have become this massive powerhouse. And Scooter Braun is the CEO of it now. Before we started this episode, we were chatting about how he's just one of these outlier people that marches to the beat of his own drum, maybe visionary or whatever, has some supreme talent you can't quite put your finger on. But just the story, you know, he's at Emory, starts throwing parties and meets, you know, Jermaine Dupree, gets hired to plan parties. And then Jermaine Dupree says, well, I want you to run marketing for So So Deaf, drops out of college. And then since then, he's, you know, Justin Bieber, Ariana Grande, Jay Balvin. His client list is is second to none. And he's obviously an angel investor, a music executive, philanthropist. But just to get into the specific story, as you said, he was named the CEO of Hybe America. And for anyone that doesn't know, Hybe is the Korean label that went public that is the home of BTS, used to be big hit, and dozens of other Korean acts, K-pop acts. They merged with Ithaca Holdings, which is Scooter Braun's company, in 2021. At the time, Scooter Braun was the co-CEO of Hybe America, and he shared the title with... Lenzo Yoon, who was prior to that, the sort of like tasked with expanding K-pop strategy in the U.S. But he sort of was, you know, behind the advancement of BTS. And that's how he sort of ascended within the company. And it was actually founded by Banksy Hook, who stepped down from the CEO in, in July 2021 and remains chairman, who originally founded Big Hit in 2005, as you say. Right. So when Banksy Hook founder stepped down in 2021 
That's when Lenzo Yoon got a bigger job than, than maybe Scooter Braun thought he deserved. So now it's not really clear what's happening to Lenzo Yoon, but I would say that in the past 24 months, Hybe's market cap has fallen 50% or so. BTS is, whether they're on hiatus or whether they're pursuing solo projects, they're a little bit of a question mark now. And so Scooter's probably like, hey, you better let me run this thing if you want to maximize shareholder value because I am, you know, the golden boy and I'm good at making money and marketing artists. And to the extent BTS is in the picture, great. We'd love that. But until we have a true bona fide global super group to market and promote, let me do my thing. Well, it's interesting because you said that, you know, the stock had dropped. And so when they made the announcement that BTS was in quote unquote hiatus in June of 2022, stock dropped 28%, which is a decrease of $1.7 billion in market value. And then they went back and they changed the word hiatus. They said, actually, no, that's mistranslated. They're not taking a hiatus. Members will be focusing on solo projects. I mean, this is what happens when you are a public company, right? The shareholders who own your company are going to react same as like Wall Street does to when someone at Google or someone at Microsoft doesn't say the thing that the street wants to hear. Right. Like if if they were like, hey, we're not going to make iPhones anymore. Like imagine what would happen to Apple's stock price. Exactly. Yeah. Use a pop culture reference in Iron Man 1 when Tony Stark says he's not going to make weapons anymore and like the stock drops, right? Like they're going to focus on energy and stuff. And so I think I think it's a good move. I mean, like it's good to diversify outside of your main act. That's not going to be the main, main act anymore, as in they're doing solo projects, et cetera. And obviously you want them to break out and to be, you know, the equivalent of like what Justin Timberlake did, et cetera. And it can be bigger than the original band or like Harry Styles, as an example, what happened with One Direction. And he has the roster and he is pretty savvy. And we're going to talk about that in the next segment, but he's very savvy when it comes to making money and recognizing talent. Oh my God, that's the understatement. Yeah, the guy is very good at making money, identifying value before the rest of the world does. Like that's where you say he's got vision. And our main topic, which we'll talk about after the break, is he discovered Justin Bieber, right? And so Justin Bieber just recently sold his catalog for a cool 200 million. He sold it to uh, Hypnosis, which is a company that has been acquiring music catalogs since 2018. And so Justin Bieber had a great week. Scooter Braun, I don't know what his percentage is of that sale, but obviously big things ahead for Justin Bieber and for Scooter Braun. This guy in the, and like in two years, he has been responsible for like, Two of the biggest music asset purchases slash sales, Justin Bieber and Taylor Swift. This guy clearly not only has a good eye for assets, I guess, that either are super valuable that can appreciate over time. But the second thing is like finding the money to buy this stuff, right? It's not like he's pulling this out of his pocket. He has a holding company. He raises money from other people. And so I think him now being the CEO of- the Well, he didn't buy Bieber's catalog. He represents Bieber. Bieber sold his- Sold, I'm saying in terms of for Taylor Swift, it's like he's buying and they're selling with Bieber. He's selling. And I think because he was on the buy side before, he'd probably really understand well how to like potentially sell a catalog, what price they would be looking for. Like he's experienced both sides of it already, you know, and getting a good payday for Bieber. And that goes inside with what's happening now with Hybe and, and Ithaca. Hybe owns 100% of Ithaca. And I, I read in Variety that it was a commitment of 50 million of bronze personal stock was dispersed to Axon employees who've been with Braun since he started in 2007. 
Bieber, Ariana Grande, they received like $10 million each in stock. Jay Balvin. And yeah. Demi Lovato, they received stock. And then it's like smaller slices of the pie were parceled out to other artists on the label's roster, including- Did Carly Rae Jepsen get any Carly stock? Carly Rae Jepsen so. and Asher Roth, who like, I thought that guy had a one hit wonder and never heard from him again. But Migos rapper Quavo also received some. So- you know, I like that. I think that's an interesting model for people. Like, good for them. They get a piece of it. Yeah. You know, you got to take care of the people that helped you get your start, right? Like, that's- it, it, 100%. That shows loyalty, and that's only going to help him get more clients, right? When when people are like, yeah, he's loyal. He takes care of us. Obviously, there's bad blood between him and Taylor Swift, but that's not really here nor there. I think the point is, he's a, you know, he's a great businessman. He has his finger on the pulse of music and entertainment. He knows what's trending and he knows what's going to be trending. And I think that's why he should be running Hybe US. Scooter Braun has probably already selected the next Scooter Braun is is, is potentially molding this person because, you know, you can't always be fresh with identifying talent. He's only 40. Right, right. But I'm just saying, you know, like there's kids now in their 20s and stuff like what's cool, what's hip, what people are listening to. I'm just saying, He's probably smart enough to know that he can't have his eyes everywhere. And at the same time, now let's say you find talent both on the older side or younger side. You have a public company to potentially offer them like, you know, in competition with everybody else. You can say, hey, join us. You know, we have the potential to give you options in this company or you get paid in equity. I think it's a really good piece of leverage that they would have to go get really great talent or bring on like, catalogs that have already been popular, artists that have already been popular. Like imagine bringing on like a Billie Eilish. I'm just saying, I don't think it would happen, but if a Billie Eilish came on because he's like, hey, we're going to reward you with equity, you have much more upside. I think there's a couple things going on here. I mean, it's one thing to represent an artist as their manager. It's another thing to be their label. He does have labels and he's also a manager and then he has venture capital and other things. So he's involved in a lot of different things. You can be someone's manager when they could have, you know, Sony or Warner as their label. But let's talk about after the break, let's talk about specifically Justin Bieber's deal and how catalog sales work in general. Because, you know, if you're a fan of the show or if you're a fan of music, you can't deny that there have been a ton of catalog sales over the past couple of years. So, Mesh, it was announced last week, Justin Bieber sold his catalog. I'm surprised it's 290 songs. Bro, You, what do you mean? What do you mean? <laughs> I, I would, If you had told me it was 150 songs, sure. I Six studio albums, 290 songs, all the songs he He's released. He's got bangers after he does. bangers no, he after does. bangers. <laughs> all the songs he released prior to 12-31-21, I believe, were sold to... Hypnosis Songs Capital, which is actually Blackstone-backed fund that acquires these copyrights and neighboring rights to popular songs. And so there's a lot going on here, and we could spend multiple hours talking about music royalties and how they're calculated and why the revenue streams. So this is going to be a very high-level overview just so that you know you guys can understand what's what's happening here. And I would say at the start, music is fundamentally copyright. It's intellectual property. And so every song has two copyrights. There's the composition, which is sort of the lyrics, the melody, the arrangement. And then there's the actual master recording. So each song has two copyrights. So when you read about 
someone sold their publishing catalog, they're selling their compositions. If someone sells their recording catalog. And, and that's usually like a songwriter, right? That's why you want like a writing, right? If you write the song, it's a publishing royalty. Correct. So you can be both a songwriter to the extent you have ownership in the composition. If you write a song or you can be a recording artist or you can be both, right? If you go in the studio, you record the master, then you could have an interest in the sound recording. If you wrote the song and you had never set foot in the studio, you could have an interest in the composition, right? And some people do both. And Justin Bieber does both and Bob Dylan does both, but some people are just songwriters. Some people are just recording artists. Typically, the record label will pay for the recording and they'll own the masters, but you'll have, as an artist, you'll have an interest in that. Typically, you'll have a music publisher that will administer the copyright in your compositions and get a percentage of the revenue. But as the songwriter, as the artist songwriter, you'll retain typically half or even sometimes more than half of the copyright in the composition. And so what Justin Bieber sold his publishing, his master recordings, his interest in the publishing copyrights, neighboring rights, all of it, everything for all the songs he's made prior to 2021 were sold to this Hypnosis, which is a Blackstone, like I said, back company. What a deal. Yeah, for $200 million. And so whatever songs he makes after that date, they're going to be owned by him or owned, you know, co-owned by his label or his publisher, whatever, whatever arrangement he has, I think going forward, is going to be what it was. So this is all back catalog stuff. Although in catalog sales, sometimes they can include provisions about having maybe a right of first opportunity or, or some sort of matching right on future works. But just to get back to exactly what is being sold here. So you have copyrights in music and music generates revenue in a couple different ways. There's four main buckets, right? There's public performance royalties or performance royalties. There's mechanical royalties. There's synchronization, and then there's like everything else. Would public play be something different like when it's playing at a restaurant or like you're walking in an outdoor mall and it's playing or you're playing, it's playing at the mall? Like that's a, a separate thing because you have like sales, you have streaming, you have if it's in a TV and film, and then if there's like public play, is that something different? That's a good question. So if it's streaming, streaming can be a public performance as well as it playing on the radio or it you know, going to a concert or hearing it at a restaurant. All of those things where music is publicly performed is considered public performance. So there's a royalty associated with that. Streaming also can be a mechanical because downloads and digital downloads are considered mechanical royalties. So selling records, selling vinyl, having downloads, that's mechanical royalties. Using music in sort of audiovisual works like film, TV, trailers, video games, that's synchronization. And then sort of selling sheet music and everything else, like that's a smaller bucket that everything else is probably like 5%. The lion's share of revenue comes from public performance. And then you could say sync is probably a quarter and mechanical might be 20%. And that's on average. But Hypnosis's theory and their investment thesis, they've been around since 2018. And the founder was actually a very prominent talent manager, kind of like Scooter Braun from a prior generation. Their thesis is that music as an asset class is it's only growing because streaming has been growing basically seven or eight percent cumulative annual growth rate since the mid 2010s. And music is getting more and more popular. It's the expansion of Internet and broadband. So people are streaming more and more. Its use in social media is going up. And so it also they're saying it's like 
not tied to economic cycle. So it's a it's an asset class that is sort of it's recession proof. Right. Recession proof. So if people are losing their jobs, if people don't have money to go to concerts or don't have money to go to sporting events, they'll still be listening to music on their phone, right? Because like that's something they feel that hit songs, like very popular songs, billboard chart topping songs are basically very secure assets where they're going to generate predictable revenue that will not ebb and flow with economic cycles. So that's the thesis. And listen, I mean, it seems like it's working. They've, in the five years they've been around, they've acquired 65,000 songs and their catalog is now valued between two and $3 billion. Blackstone is behind them. And if you don't know who Blackstone is, you should check out their website. But they're one of the most successful. Just one of the biggest asset managers in the world. But it's funny because another famous Justin, Justin Timberlake sold his copyrights of 200 songs that he wrote and co-wrote in a deal worth, I think it was like- um, 100 million. Once it was like 120, 100, 120 million. And he sold it to the same folks. Hypnosis, yeah. Hypnosis has been on a buying spree because, and I think this is like, to just to take a step back, this is so- like any asset, you're looking at what is the revenue that I can predict? What is the income that I think will be generated moving forward? What are the expenses I'm going to have? What are the risks to that income? Is there a legal claim? Is there a copyright termination right? Is there a co-writer that's going to be a nightmare to deal right, with? Right, right. Does the label have serious approval rights? Or does the publisher, can I buy them out? Or when does the publishing agreement expire? So there's all these questions about the revenue stream from the copyright. And then you wonder... Let's say you were looking to buy an apartment building or a medical practice or anything that generates cash, right? You're going to wonder, was it mismanaged? Is there upside here? Is there opportunity for me to increase the cash flows? Uh, so there's like a rate of growth. There's historical performance. Then there's, hey, if I manage this properly, if I have a better sync team putting this in more TV and film and getting it in more trailers, can I squeeze more revenue out that way? And so there's all these different things you're thinking about in terms of how the revenue can be modeled and what the risks are. And then also you have to think about, well, what is the cost to borrow it? And so if you're Blackstone and your cost of capital is really low because everyone wants to give you their money to sort of invest because you're better at doing it than they are, then maybe the interest rate, if you can borrow money at you know X percent and earn double that, right. So that's that's why this is happening. It, you're essentially it's a it's a collateralized like you can borrow against collateral in this case if you have you know an asset like Justin Bieber's catalog that is just constantly you know a printing cash you borrow against that to go do whatever you want to do and like that's not going to stop making cash. It's not like recession is going to happen and you're going to lose vacancies in your rent, rental apartment building or something like that. You know, no one's abandoning the Biebs. So Justin Bieber is the first artist of his generation. This is the richest deal for anyone in his generation. He's not even 30 years old. He has sold his catalog for $200 million. So other catalog sales, Bruce Springsteen is like $550 million. Justin Timberlake, you said, was $100 million. Hypnosis also bought the Red Hot Chili Peppers catalog for like $150 Oh, no million. shit. I didn't know that. Really? Yeah. Yeah. Bangers again by the Chili Peppers. But the Bob Dylan thing, he sold his back catalog for $150 million to Sony Music, which ranged from 1962 to 2020. And before that, he sold his entirety of his publishing rights to Universal Music Group for $300 million because he, you know, famously, Bob Dylan has written a lot of songs that other people have covered. And then he has his records that he sold, right? So, like, the best example of a Dylan song is, like, Knocking on Heaven's Door by Guns N' Roses 
is originally like a Bob Dylan song. I mean, there's a bunch of others I can't think of off the top of my head. But yeah, Dolly Parton's the same way. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. I think that is also so fascinating. And if you think about Bieber, you're, you're like, he's not even 30. This guy probably, I mean, how much more, like, and I really liked his last two albums. Imagine what he's capable of making in the next 10, 20 years of his career, if he wants to do anything at all, of course. If he wants to, right? I mean, I know he had some health scares. I think he had to truncate his tour or cancel some tour dates because of some health scares recently. I wonder if that has anything to do with it. It could. I mean, you could be just selling where you think the market is at a sort of like a peak or capitalizing on some exuberance in the market. It's also, he's young. He's He can cash out $200 million, a, a nice chunk of change. I don't know what his net worth is. Maybe it's half a billion or- And that doesn't include his touring revenue, right? Like how much money he makes in tours. And then this is like a separate- This is just the right to receive royalties and compensation from the use of the copyrights. Yeah, he's doing pretty damn well. He is, but like, who knows? Maybe he just wants to sort of like settle down and be a dad or something. I don't, I don't know what his goal is, but- He's very young and he's got the ability to, you know, do whatever he wants and he's got a big check. And that's what Scooter Braun said. He's like, you know, we were all privileged to watch this guy come up and be such a, you know, prolific and amazing artist. And it's, I'm, I'm happy for him, which is great. But I, I do want to say, like, these deals can get really complicated because there are some of them, are, like you said, are just going to be compositions. Some of them will include recordings and with composition, sometimes there's more than one writer. So there's, right, right, you know, you're right, dividing right. the pie among multiple writers. But like someone like Bob Dylan or Dolly Parton, you know, they write songs that were hits for other people, but they still get a big chunk of the revenue because they own a share of the composition. So even though you don't realize that it's her song or his song, it's still, you know, generating a lot of money. Yeah, and like, and Gaga is like this too, right? Gaga writes her own song. I mean, I can't even imagine what her catalog's worth at this point, but she's also written songs for other people. Like she started off as a songwriter and then made a massive success as a pop star with her own catalog. I wonder where her catalog numbers end up in the next few years. But I, I read something where it said publishing multiples are running at 10 to 12x with master rights slightly lower. Like that's what people are willing to pay for these things right now. And probably based on, again, th let's think about where the world is right now. Like everything, like 2022 is a bad year for everything. We've said it numerous times, stocks are down, everything was down. You know, bonds right now, look, interest rates are up. Maybe you can get anywhere from like three to 6% in the, you know, the credit markets. People are worried about a recession, housing. All these things are like, everyone's worried about it. And then you've got like song, like song catalogs, bro. Like song catalogs are just this, it's incredible because to your point, they're not stopping listening to music. And if anything, it just gets more popular and popular. And I like what you said earlier about now, if you own this catalog, what are you going to do to increase the value of it? Besides obviously like just general popularity, getting stuff featured more and more. I think a good example is this is like, is the Rolling Stones. The Rolling Stones, famously, you hear like a lot of their music in film and TV. And it's like, you might not hear it on the radio, like on, uh, or like on streaming, unless you're, it's not coming into your mix if you're listening like top 40s or pop. But in film and TV, you always hear the Rolling Stones. And commercials. And commercials. Yeah. commercials, trailers. And it's just, it's like yeah, Led Zeppelin, Rolling yeah, Stones. Led I mean, Zeppelin, the sync yeah. licensing. Sync licensing for trailers is ridiculously expensive. I can't even imagine. When my clients are, Doing like, oh, we want to license, you know, Stairway to Heaven to promote to promote <laughs> yeah. our film. It's like, okay, yeah. well, what is your budget for music? Because you're going to blow through that to yeah. get Stairway to Heaven. But, you know, that's like, 
that's the name of the game. If if a song can make your trailer viewed by you know 100 million people, then then it might be worth it. But I think it's really interesting because this is not really this is not an investing podcast. But 2007, 2008, right around the Great Recession, Blackstone started buying up houses, right? And so after by I think 2011 or 12, they were the largest single owner of homes in the U.S. And so this, you can just view it as another asset class. Like they have the model. They're getting more and more experience in, into what music is worth and how the rights can be monetized. And once they run the numbers and they start finding catalogs that they like, then they just, you know, they're, they're just an efficient business at acquiring these assets, collecting the cash, raising the money, buying more and more and more. I think a good, a good example of a syndication deal that just made a movie trailer the movie was already going to be popular, but I think everyone was talking about the movie trailer for one. It, it's a famous, uh, you know, um, DC character, but it was the Batman when they used Nirvana's something in the way, and it was yeah. like the, the, the slow down version, and it just was so good. And you know, I, I'd like to bring up as we come to a close on this on this conversation. If you think back, like if we think about, okay, Justin Bieber, under thirty years old sold his catalog for 200 million. If we look at like one of the original stories of just a badass business person and and just to compare the numbers in 1985 Michael Jackson, Paul McCartney, the famous story of how Paul McCartney was like it's all in the publishing rights, it's all in the masters, like you should own that stuff. So Michael Jackson went and bought the Beatles catalog and outbid Paul McCartney I know. for $47 million in 1985, which apparently back then was insane. And then 10 years later, he sold half of it for $95 million to Sony. And then after he died, and this is what I've read, Sony agreed to pay $700 million to buy the remaining 50%. Then now the whole catalog is worth over a billion. So in 1985, it was worth $47 million, and now it's worth over a billion. That's insane. Well, that's Hypnosis's theory, right. right? It's like these things, if it's a hit song, it's not going to fall out of favor and it's going to keep generating royalties and music is only going to increase in value because it's a part of everyday life. I mean, listen, everyone knows a handful of people that hate music. I I, I don't you know personally <laughs> get that, but I most people I know yeah, 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 are listening yeah. to music or Better Call Paul. Yeah, exactly. You know, in their commutes and their day to day in the gym. So a- anyone who says I-, I actually met one person once. Uh, I think I went on, on a date with someone uh, who said they didn't like music, and like this was a long time ago. And I was like, "This is," uh, it's like I can't listen to music you know, like when I'm walking around and like commuting and stuff. It's just not what I want to do. I mean, what do you listen to? Like nothing. Obviously, like listen, this is not never going to work. She ended up never going out with me again for other reasons. But I, in theory, in my head, dumped her because maybe she you dodged was, a bullet. <laughs> yeah, I did. I did dodge a bullet. But dude, I mean, I love this topic. I was so excited when this came up, and I'm hoping like because this is like that perfect mix of like legal business. It's pop culture. It's so fascinating, and it's something that everyone can really understand. Like, are we are the reason? It's very legal. Yeah, music copyrights. And oh, by the way. It's different throughout the world. And so you're owning a worldwide interest, but like the U.S. has termination rights that don't apply. Europe has neighboring rights, which don't exist in the U.S. It's super complicated. And that's why you need to call Paul if you want to sell your catalog. <laughs> oh, okay. Let's leave, let's leave off on this. Can you give us an idea of what it would cost for a very popular song in a trailer? I'm just curious what those numbers look like. Probably seven figures. 
So like if I want to use a role, like I make a trailer for a movie, I, I'm basically saying, hey, make sure you leave like a million to three million dollars so that we can put this song in the trailer. Probably a mil. I, three would be on the high end, but it, I mean, it depends on the song. Yeah. But just think about it. So Hypnosis is basically paying $800,000 a song for Justin Bieber's catalog. Yeah. <laughs> That's so cool. To, and a trailer license is only going to be for like a month or maybe six weeks. So that's why I don't know what it would cost to license something, figure out like, you know, maybe a Beyonce, Justin Bieber's. I just can't imagine it being significantly more than one or one and a half million, but it could be. I mean, it's a negotiation. Yeah, but that's still, that's a pretty good, like imagine this being like, hey, the trailer wants a year sign. Yeah, yeah, cool. Uh, just send us a million dollars. I mean, that's a pretty nice payday. Sure. But if you're spending a hundred million on your movie and it's the difference between people seeing it and not seeing it, I mean, that's that's how it Well, gets. exactly. And I think it's like, and, and it's vice versa where the song just gets exposure again. The trailer is a really amazing trailer. This thing's got like 40 million views on YouTube or whatever it is. Like your song is just, it's just, it's like getting streamed for another reason without someone having to click on it. I, I think the, it's just such a fascinating, it's so unique how music works, you know? And I, and I think it goes down to like, yes, a lot of artists, you know, I think it's just with anything, it's hard to make money. But when you are are big and you can write and you build a catalog, um, good for them for being able to sell it for that much. For sure, yeah. And like I said, like you said, I mean, Bieber's got plenty of time to make more hits. Yeah, dude. I mean, look, uh, baby, boyfriend, what do you mean? Sorry, love yourself, yummy, holy peaches. That's just some of the songs from two hundred the 291 song catalog. I'm excited for the next album. Beauty and the Beat. Come on. I'm about to listen to that at the gym right now. I know. I know. It's, it's like, it's amazing. I mean, he's, he's done a, a phenomenal job. Good for him. I, I can't wait to see what the future holds. And if it holds nothing, that's cool too. I mean, he can just chill and count his, count his stacks. Never say never though. You know, you know, you, you just never say never with, with a Justin Bieber who uh, could come back and just keep hits after hits. I don't know if you've been noticing my, I've been trying to throw in some Justin Bieber. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, word <laughs> wordplay throughout the show but i don't know if anyone's gonna catch on who knows is it too late now to say sorry it, it, it's never too late it's never too late i mean i think you should just love yourself and um you know go get yourself a yummy peach and okay i'm done i'm done yeah. well that's our show for <laughs> good, this good, week good show paul yeah no I'm, I'm glad we were able to walk through it at a very high level uh any any complaints go to <laughs> mesh lakani uh, great breakdown, Paul. That's our show for this week, folks. We'll see you next week. Make sure you subscribe to the podcast, Apple, Spotify, wherever you choose to listen. Follow us on Instagram at Better Call Paul the Podcast. Follow me on Twitter at Mesh Lakani. Better Call Paul is produced and edited by Valentino Rivera. Have a great week. Take care, everyone. Thank you. <laughs>